All right, well, we're back. We're into Mark chapter 15. As we get into the word, why don't we take a moment and pray together as a church family. Jesus, I thank you for this word. I thank you that you have so much to teach us today. Jesus, your example in this passage is just earth-shatteringly beautiful. It's just amazing. Lord, I pray that we would see it. Lord, I pray that we would come with humility uh, today. Father, as we try to unpack this passage, Jesus, I pray that we would ultimately uh, be humble enough to come and worship you. Lord, that the, the time together would be one that is honoring to you. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to warn you, we're in for a meaty one today. So buckle up, get your, 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 your seatbelt on in the words of Graham White, buckle up, we're, we're in for a good one. So this passage is the trial of Jesus by Pilate, the religious leaders, and the crowds. It's the moment where Jesus is ultimately sentenced to death. Now, now think about this for a moment. This is a really fascinating scene. The incarnate Son of God, God himself, finds himself on trial. Now we can become numb to this fact quite easily. It's become sort of part of just our 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 rhythms as Christians and even those who are not Christians that are tuning in today, you know, we just are like, yeah, okay, Jesus had a trial, Jesus was crucified. But the irony of this scene shouldn't be lost on us. Let me put it this way. The author of justice itself, the standard against which all goodness is measured, the very definition of love, the very word of God finds himself on trial. Like that is, that is supremely ironic. The scene itself is almost a logical contradiction. How can God, who is perfect, who is the definition of perfect, be on trial? He is the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is justice. He cannot be placed on trial. And yet that is exactly where he is. The mere fact that Jesus, who is perfect, innocent, the full embodiment of God in man, the fact that he could find himself in a trial is an indictment on all of humanity you and I included. If our sense individually, and if our sense collectively of moral order can be so corrupted that we could put God on trial, we should read this text and weep. Think about that for a moment. How can we, sinful, broken, messed up humans, have put God on trial? It's almost like it reminded me of Job in the Old Testament. Shouting at God, and God responds essentially, Who do you think you are? Job. Who do we think we are that justice belongs to us, 
that we get to define it, that we get to look at God and put him on trial. Who do we think we are that we can look to God and put ourselves in the judgment seat? And place the creator, the author, the holy God in the defendant's box. And yet that is exactly what happens here in Mark 15. The created tries the creator. Here's the thesis for what I want to talk about today. It's very simple. It's a one-point message. That's actually not. It's four, but I'll give you the one here. It's this. This is the overarching thesis. When our sense of justice arises from ourselves rather than a profound humility before the throne of Almighty God, we will not achieve justice, we will achieve injustice. When our sense of justice arises from ourselves, not from the throne of the Almighty God, the result is the crucifixion of the Son of God. You see, this text in Mark 15 is about justice. It's about right and wrong. In fact, all of Jesus' life is about justice. But in this text, there are two competing visions of what justice is. There is a vision of justice that originates in humanity, in human experience, in human ideas. And it was that justice that put Jesus on the cross. But there's a second justice at work here. A justice that originates in humble submission before God. And it was this justice that Jesus enacted when he gave himself on that horrific cross. But it was also that justice that led to the resurrection of the Son of God and the conquering of death itself. Let me give you my thesis a different way. When we pursue justice of any kind without dealing with the idols in our hearts, we will become the propagators of profound injustice. Let me say that again. When we try to achieve justice without dealing with the idols in our hearts, without dealing with our fallen condition, without coming before God in a posture of repentance, we will not become the propagators of justice. We will become the propagators of a profound and tragic injustice. Now maybe you're wondering, what, what am I referring to? I'm using this word justice very broadly. What do I, what do I mean with the word justice? Well, I'm talking about at least three senses of justice in this passage. I'm first of all talking about relational injustice. The kind of injustice when a friend wrongs us person to person. You know when you feel offended or hurt, legitimately or not, 
the injustice that comes interpersonally. I'm referring to the injustice that comes when we are on the wrong side of a, a deal or the wrong side of an interaction. Sort of a malevolent injustice. And I'm also referring to systemic injustice. The injustices of the systems in our world. How can I speak to all three and how do all three have to come out of this text? Well, what we're going to discover is that all three are essentially rooted in the same thing. The corruption of the human heart. All injustice starts with the human heart. Likewise, all true Jesus-honoring justice also starts by dealing with the human heart. Now you see, there's four main actors, plus Jesus, in this trial. We've got Pilate, the Roman governor, who is charged with leading with justice, bringing justice, ruling, making decisions. We've got the high priests, who are vying for their own kind of justice, their own sense of moral order. We've got Barabbas, the, the, the violent criminal who is imprisoned. He too is seeking after his own kind of justice. And finally, we have the crowds who are also after a version of justice. All four are after a kind of justice. All four are trying to right some kind of grievance or wrong or perceived wrong in their worlds. All four think that they are trying to do the, quote, right thing. And yet the result of all four of them was to end up crucifying an innocent man. How does that happen? I hope what I can demonstrate is how the pursuit of justice is both individual and systematic. And it is both individually and systemically compromised when it's not rooted in humility before God. But on the other hand, how Jesus shows us a so much better way. I want to start by talking about Pilate. Pilate's justice and its intersection with power. Pilate's justice and its intersection with power. Verse 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, he handed him, Jesus, over to be crucified. Notice what Pilate's motivation was. He's been charged with leading with justice, but what was his motivation? What was he after? Well, it says here it was satisfying the crowd. In other words, Pilate's motivation was to protect his position of power. He wanted to look good in front of the greatest number of people. His motivation was not true God-honoring justice. It was a kind of justice that results in people being satisfied. The consequence of this maneuver was the death of an innocent man. You see, Pilate's capacity for true, godly, biblical justice was compromised because it was overruled by a desire for success, influence, position, and power. 
We cannot achieve meaningful justice if we are protecting ourselves. We cannot love people unless we are willing to be vulnerable. I'll give you this example. You cannot hug someone, show them that you love them without opening yourself up, without exposing yourself to a vulnerable interaction. No longer guarded, arms up, hands up, we open ourselves up to a hug. Well, in the same way, we can't enact justice if our motivation is to protect ourselves. Justice requires vulnerability. Now, maybe you're thinking, yeah, that's right. All you people in power, all you uh, people in influence, let go. And I want to show you that this is actually far more insidious and operates on an individual level. You don't have to be in power to commit this error. I'll give you an example from myself. Almost 10 years ago, there was a person in our church uh, who kind of slowly worked their way into, into leadership. They were influential, persuasive, gifted. And uh, in fact, I, I depended on their support quite a bit. However, there was also major character issues in which they would routinely treat people unkindly, gossip, or operate with sh like a supreme prejudice or partiality. In fact, because of this person's actions, many people were driven out of the church, weeping because of harm that this person had caused. And over the years, I routinely, as a leader, instead of walking out justice kindly, I opted for silence. I gave the benefit of the doubt. I didn't want to cause a stir. I wanted to keep people satisfied. But my desire to keep people satisfied and happy compromised my ability to lead our church in a just and kind way and resulted in people being hurt. I wanted to keep the peace, keep people satisfied, and the result was a lot of pain for a lot of people. Why? Because I was more concerned about protecting myself than I was about walking out justice and integrity as a leader. And that was a very painful lesson. That's at the small scale, right? So individually we can commit this. We protect ourselves because we want to keep people happy instead of walking out the right thing. Individually we do this all the time. But it also operates, and I'm going to do this for each of the points, give an individual example and then a systemic example. I want to show you what, this, what happens when we try to walk out justice this way on a systemic level. A few weeks ago uh, in our parliament, an MP tabled a bill that was to amend the criminal code to prohibit sex-selective abortions. Now, some of you, your alarm bells are going off immediately as soon as I open this up. I want you to hear me out on this. The bill was to try to amend the criminal code to prevent sex-selective abortions. That is the terminating of a preborn human being for the sole reason that they have the wrong 
sex. That is the termination of a voiceless image bearer of God for something that they have no control over. This is a massive injustice. By some estimates alone, by some estimates, there has been more than 160 million sex selective abortions committed in the last hundred years. That's 160 million mostly female image bearers of God terminated because they simply happen to have the wrong sex. Now here's the thing, maybe you say, well, that's all fine and good, Robin. What does that have to do with people protecting their power? Here's the thing. In a broad poll conducted by a neutral party, 84% of Canadians said that they feel this is wrong. 84%, the overwhelming majority of Canadians said this is wrong. When the bill was tabled, everyone that debated the bill agreed. This is wrong. This is not a good thing. We should not terminate human beings because they have the wrong sex. And yet, the bill did not receive a single vote to be passed. How is that possible? How can people look at something and say, I agree, this is wrong, but we're going to do nothing about it? How is that possible? The reason is, when our sense of justice is connected to protecting our sense of power, we cannot enact justice. It's a well-established fact that you basically can't touch the question of abortion in Canadian politics. If you do, it's the end of the conversation. And so, as a result, no one was willing to address the obvious and agreed upon injustice because it's not politically advisable. What did Jesus do? How is Jesus' vision of justice different? Does Jesus cling to his sense of power? Does Jesus protect himself? Well, obviously, Jesus is standing here on trial before Pilate, unprotected and vulnerable. But listen to what Philippians 2 says. Jesus, who existing in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking the likeness of humanity. How did Jesus bring about justice? Not by clinging to his position of power, not by clinging to what was rightfully his, but by giving it up for the benefit of the whole. He gave up his position. He gave up his rights. He made himself nothing so that we who are nothing might become something. The only way that we can bring real injustice, real justice to the world is when we die to ourselves, we surrender our rights, we give up our position, and we become servants. We cannot truly love people and bring justice while protecting ourselves. Second audience, or second character in this trial, it's the high priests. And this is the intersection of their pursuit of justice corrupted by envy. It says, for Pilate knew the reason that the high priests had brought Jesus forward, and it was because of envy. 
that the high priest handed him over. The high priest is pursuing justice. They're offended that Jesus is claiming kingship. They're offended that Jesus is claiming uh, to be the son of God. They're offended by these things. They desire justice, but it's justice motivated by envy. The, the high priests were envious because Jesus was garnering attention, favor, and wisdom. He was suggesting that he should be king, and in their minds it was unfair. He should not get what was theirs, or in their mind, rightfully theirs. Their solution? Remove Jesus. You see, the human heart is envious. We look at what others have and we crave it for ourselves. Notice in the Ten Commandments, which are sort of like the bedrock of God's vision of justice, it says, do not covet, which is closely related to do not be envious. But we underestimate how hardwired each of us is. Every single person hardwired for the propensity towards selfish envy. Very early in the scriptures, and we're going to come to this in a couple of days, in Genesis chapter 4, Cain is envious of his brother Abel. Abel receives more favor with God because of his offering, and Caleb is envious of his brother. And so what does Cain do? He looks at what Abel has that he doesn't, and Cain enacts his version of justice. What was his version of justice? Well, it was to kill his brother. It's very easy to confuse or conflate a question of justice and a question of jealousy. It's very easy to look at what others have and demand it for ourselves in the name of justice. But when we do that, when we look at what others have and demand that we should have it too, we have compromised our justice. You see, a justice that is rooted in what we can get in comparison to what others have will never produce true freedom. Why? Because it can only ever accomplish its goal by taking what someone else has. Justice that flows from envy is not and can never produce real lasting justice. You see, when our demand for justice results in that everyone receives the same as someone else in every situation, it's not really a motivation for justice. It's a motivation driven by what we don't have in envy. A ruthless demand for justice and equality where everyone gets exactly the same thing is not true justice. Fairness is an entirely reasonable uh, uh, command. And in fact, Scripture commands us to not show partiality, to be fair and equitable in our dealings, but demanding that everybody get exactly the same thing is not justice. I'll give you an example of why this can't produce justice. Imagine you've worked really hard on a project. This is at the individual level. You've worked really hard on a project in the church. You've been slaving away on, uh, I don't know, let's say, cooking meals for Pinky Lewis on Tuesdays where we serve some, some of the vulnerable in our cities. And you've been working away. You've been there every single week. You show up early and you stay late. And a new person shows up and uh, 
the new guy on the block shows up and they kind of do a half-hearted job and they do, um, you know, they, they chip in their piece, but, but they get recognized. Morgan comes along and says, hey, I'd love to put a celebration video out about you. You're doing a great job. We want to really recognize and thank you for serving to this newcomer. And so they get celebrated. The whole church cheers them on. But meanwhile, you who have been slaving away, continue to slave away in silence. Now this feels like a matter of justice. You've both worked very hard. You both, you feel, should fairly receive credit. But is it really a matter of justice? Should not the act of generosity be done independent of recognition? It's not really justice to say that both should receive praise. It's driven by envy. So often our desire for fairness and equality is not driven by a true biblical justice. It's driven by jealousy. Let me show you what happens when you take this at the individual level and you blow it up to the macro level. In the 1960s and 70s, the Khmer Rouge, which was the ruling party in Cambodia, took the inequalities that they observed in Cambodian life as an inherent evil to be completely and totally eradicated. It was unjust that there was equalities, so the reasoning went. But it was an ideology that was driven by envy. And the solution was, if I can't have it, nobody can. And so the justice that was enacted under Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge was to brutally murder two million image bearers in Cambodia. Two million precious people were brutally executed simply because they had something that somebody else didn't. More education, more money, more influence, whatever. If you wind back and you look at propaganda in Germany in the early 1930s and 1920s, you will see that one of the primary motivations behind the hatred of the Jewish people was envy. Envy disguised as justice. We know how that ended. You see, it's easy to look at the scenario of the I was serving and I didn't get credit and the scenario of Cambodia, two million people dying and say they're not related. But hear me, they are coming from the exact same place, envy. And when our pursuit of justice originates in envy, it results in destruction. The high priests were envious of Jesus, their solution, execute him. Execute an innocent Man, execute the Son of God. What does Jesus do? Jesus gave himself sacrificially. Jesus gave himself to stand on trial. Jesus gave his life for us. The solution that comes from a biblical sense of justice is not a forceful equality rooted in envy, 
whether it's individual or systemic. It is a radical generosity that starts with us giving what we have. The justice of God is always going to be connected to the generosity of God. The generosity of Jesus who gave his life for us. Generosity is the basis for our justice. This is why what we do with our money as Christians is a matter of profound justice. Are we a generous people or are we an envious people? You see, when we give generously, we are actually walking out the justice paradigms of our Creator, who gave Himself. He did not walk out in envy. It's Pilate and the high priest. Thirdly, let's look at Barabbas. Verse 7, there was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. So here we have a guy who's in prison for murdering people and for inciting insurrection. Now the context here is that Barabbas was likely part of a violent contingent of Jewish people trying to rid themselves of Roman rule. The Romans were very oppressive and the Jewish people hated the oppressive rule of the Romans. And so uh, in the years leading up to Jesus and the years after Jesus, there were a sequence of revolts by the Jewish people against their Roman overlords. And Barabbas was a part of this. Barabbas sought justice against the injustices of the Roman Empire. He wanted justice. He was pursuing justice. But look at his tools. What are the tools of his justice? Well, the tools of his justice are hatred, aggression, violence, and murder. The justice that Barabbas brought into the world was not a justice that was kind, forgiving, and gracious. It was a justice that was violent, aggressive, and murderous. You see, a pursuit of justice that does not begin with the value of every single human being, regardless of age, stage, size, gender, whatever. If we don't start with their value as an image bearer of God, our sense of justice will devolve into violence. Unless our sense of justice starts at the foot of the throne of God saying, God, what do you say about people? We will very quickly be able to designate others as less deserving or warranting than ourselves, which very quickly leads to violence. Now maybe you're saying, well, Robin, that's not me. I would never hurt anyone. I would never commit violence. Church, our capacity for violence is a millimeter below the surface. Listen to Jesus exegeting the human heart in Matthew chapter 5. He says, But you have heard it said to our ancestors, Do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, Whoever is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus isn't so much raising the bar of what you know, his vision of morality is here as he is exposing the human condition and propensity rooted in anger 
that very quickly becomes violence towards other people. On an individual level, have you noticed that when you are wronged by another person, when your sense of justice is, is violated, how quickly we vilify, demean, and gossip about that person? How quickly we elevate ourselves above that other person? How quickly, when we sense that our sense of justice has been violated by another person, how quickly we become better than them. Church, that is the path to murderous hatred, according to Jesus. You see, we assume that, well, we're really not that bad. We just got to like, like each other better. We just need to be nicer. But we underestimate the capacity for evil that is within all of us. It is just below the surface. And until our vision of justice takes seriously the human capacity for violence towards one another that lies in me and in you, we will not be able to achieve Jesus' vision of justice. At a systemic level, I don't know that I need to cite much evidence here to suggest that there is a profound capacity for evil in the human heart. It's in all of us. But Jesus shows a different way. At the end of this passage, he is flogged, tortured, humiliated, and then led away to be executed. His response forgiveness. Not quoted here in Mark, but in the other Gospels, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. As his executioners enacted a cruel, misguided, and distorted form of justice by violently brutalizing Jesus, Jesus executed a holy, beautiful, redeeming, and life-giving justice by offering forgiveness. The pathway to justice is not through our grievances, it's through our forgiveness. Individually, collectively, systemically. Notice that just prior to this event, Jesus explicitly stops his disciples from using violence. He forgives those who tortured him. Jesus is demonstrating a different kind of justice. The justice of God always responds with forgiveness, not in kind. Finally, the fourth actors in this scene is the crowds. We've talked about justice and power. We've talked about justice and violence. We've talked about justice and envy. Finally, I want to talk about justice and mob rule. Verse 13, the crowd shouted, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? Implicitly saying, why? Because he's innocent. What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Now the phrase uh, cancel culture is a popular phrase 
I think no one actually thinks that they're enacting cancel culture, but the irony is that cancel culture is not a new thing. We have evidence right here that Jesus was effectively canceled by the mob. Human beings, especially when powered by a collective thinking or a mob mentality, in the pursuit of writing their grievances can very quickly devolve into supremely unjust behavior. But what we can mistakenly do, and we do this even as Christians, is that, well, if we stand with the crowd and say the right slogans and utter the right phrases and we pursue justice, or at least say that we're pursuing justice, then we must be achieving justice. Because there's a lot of people saying it and there's a lot of the right words and a lot of the right ideas and we're woke or whatever. But is this really the pathway to justice? You see, when we uncritically join the mob, we very quickly become purveyors of injustice in the name of justice. And this isn't belonging to one type of group or one political party or one area. This is part of the human condition. When we find ourselves carried along by the mob, it doesn't matter what that mob's perspective is, we will very quickly become purveyors of injustice. You see, the crowd in this first century scene with Jesus was very legitimately angry. They had suffered a great deal at the hands of the Romans. But in their efforts to right their view of the wrongs, they end up committing an even greater wrong. Murdering an innocent man. Shortly after Jesus' death, the mob would again, in the name of justice, stone an innocent person to death, Stephen. You see, when our pursuit of justice is informed by culture, or it's informed by what we're hearing in our classrooms, or it's informed by what we read on social media, not what we read about in scripture first as the first and final authority, we will inevitably end up creating injustices rather than solving them. This happens all the time on social media. It's why I don't have social media. Because in our pursuit of justice on social media, we become individually keyboard warriors. But have you observed how quickly a debate about an idea devolves into personal attacks, the demeaning of people, and the diminishing of the worth of other human beings? We start out so well and noble, and so quickly we become corrupted. My suggestion here would be to just sign out of social media and delete your account, but we do it all the time. What about on a systemic level? I'll give you an example. The sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s was motivated in part by a desire to write the injustices of sexism, which are real. There is real injustice there. But because the solutions did not arise out of a love of Jesus and the truth of the scriptures, it has in, in effect created injustice. The result of the sexual revolution has been disastrous. I'll give you just one example. In some demographics, it's been shown 
that there has been an increase from 25%, which is too high, to just shy of 70% of people are, who are born are born into single parent households. Yet it has been shown conclusively that the rates of poverty, violence, gang behavior, and virtually every other negative uh, attribute that we could assign correlate directly with whether or not someone is raised in a healthy two-parent home as God has designed. The drive of the sexual revolution has in fact driven more people into unhealthy home life which has resulted in more injustice for millions of people. Similarly, the massively popular Bolshevik revolution of the 20th century, the reign of Mugabe in Zimbabwe, which I was personally affected by, the rule of the Nazis in Germany, and almost every other massive social movement that I can see on all sides of the political spectrum were motivated by a sense of injustice. Yet in all of the cases I just cited, the mob did not create more justice, it actually created incredible injustices. Notice what Jesus does when faced with the mob. Nothing. Silence. Am I suggesting that we do nothing? No, of course not. <laughs> I'm suggesting that we should not join the mob simply because the mob is shouting, and we should not get into a fight with the mob simply because the mob is shouting. We need to demonstrate the kind of justice that Jesus has called us to the same way Jesus did with our actions. Jesus does nothing. He is executed. He gives his life. And then he rises from the dead. Jesus brings justice not by entering into a debate, not even by verbally defending himself, but by uh, surrendering himself and then allowing the fruit of that surrender to be borne out in the resurrection. Jesus trusted that justice was not ultimately his in that moment, that it was his father's. Justice does not belong to us. It belongs to a sovereign God who will bring real, lasting, authentic justice. What do we do as a church? In order to live this like Jesus, we too don't need to get into shouting matches. We don't need to vie for power. What we need to do is give our lives sacrificially, lovingly, graciously for the people around us. God cares profoundly about injustice. He cares about it enough that he came and died under the weight of an unjust system. And if we want to be part of bringing justice to this world, which I pray we do, it means that we must start by acknowledging the truth of the human condition that we, me, Robin Waller, I am prone to building these idols in my heart. And I need Jesus to change me. I am prone 
to protecting myself. I am prone to envy. I am prone to anger. I am prone to simply finding and chasing the loudest voices and not thinking through things or allowing Scripture to mold me. I am prone to these things. Jesus, forgive me. The good news, though, church, is that Jesus has forgiven us. He did give his life. He did show a better way. And he has invited his church to walk out the kind of justice that he showed us how to live. Church, that we would enter into the brokenness of our world, not run from it. We would engage the pain of our brothers and sisters who are hurting. That we would come to those who are in need and say, I will serve you. The identity of the Christian is intertwined with the identity of a servant becoming less, giving our lives. So how do we respond? We respond by being like Jesus, by being His church, by being a bastion for real, authentic, biblical, Jesus-modeling, gospel-centric justice. We sacrificially lay down our lives every one of us, every simple church, every simple church member saying, I will serve. I will go where you send me, Jesus. I will go to the need, not with a megaphone, not with activism, not with my keyboard, but with food and an open home and an open heart, not to those who are like me, but to my enemies, that I might love them as you have loved them. I want to give us four ways to respond today, church. Number one, we need to repent from our propensity to protect our own interests in the name of justice and choose to lay down our life for others. Number two, we need to repent from our propensity towards envy in the name of justice and choose to live radically generous. Number three, we need to repent from our propensity to attack others and build up ourselves in the name of justice and choose to live sacrificially loving towards our very enemies. Number four, we need to repent from our propensity to join the loudest group and instead choose to live by the humble work of our hands and our homes through lives of service. All of these require the Holy Spirit. None of them are possible in ourselves. I pray that we would see how much better Jesus' way is. That we would pray, Jesus, less of me, less of my ideas, and more of you and your ideas. Help me by your grace, Jesus, to lay my life down for my brother, my sister, the individual people we interact with. Jesus, that this church would become a signpost towards the very one who gave his life for us. I love you, church. I pray you receive that today. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this passage. I'm just so, I'm so humbled because, Jesus, I see myself in these characters in this scene. And I see you, Jesus, and I see how inadequate I am. 
But Jesus, thank you that you have loved me even so, that you loved Pilate and you loved Barabbas and you loved the high priests and you loved the crowds and you loved me enough to die. Jesus, I pray that I would be like that. I pray that our church would be like that. I pray that each of us, Jesus, would be molded to be more and more and more and more like you. Not protecting ourselves, but giving ourselves, Lord. Amen. 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 Be blessed, church. We'll throw the question up on the screen in just a second for you guys to discuss in your simple churches. Love you guys. Have a great week.